Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Talk to Ben. It's the last episode of the series and I want to thank all of you who have been supporting me along this journey so far. This week I have a chat with my wife Laura Friedman who works as a pension sister. We talk about her experience of grief and a little bit more about my mental health. I hope you enjoy episode 10. Welcome to Talk to Ben episode 10. It's the last in the first series. My guest today is someone who's been spoken about in previous episodes. My wife, Laura Friedman. Laura and I've been together six and a half years and married almost a year. Laura works as a pension solicitor. So welcome, Laura. Welcome to the show, finally. Hi, Ben. Nice to finally be on. It's a bit strange, I suppose, um, you being on the other side of the chair. It's strange. So I've listened to all the other episodes, but to actually be in the seat... Um, I mean, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, but I think it'll be really good. It's nice to me. It's the first time I've actually sat opposite someone rather than seen virtually. Obviously, we've been in this pandemic together, which we'll talk about. Okay, so I'm going to start with some quick-fire questions. Let's see what comes to your mind first. So start with a nice easy one for you. Wine or Prosecco? Prosecco, but I don't mind a glass of wine. No, I know you don't, but which one would you prefer? It's got to be the bubbles. It's got to be the Prosecco. Okay. Where is the worst place you can get stuck? In a lift. I used to have a fear of lifts like quite badly as a child. Um, so for me to be stuck in a lift, that would just terrify me. For me, I'd be claustrophobic. Like, there's no guessing out. We're literally stuck. What is the worst job you could have? Worst job I could have? Probably a doctor. I don't, I don't think I could go through the heartache of seeing, you know, seeing your patients struggle. I don't think I could deal with that emotionally. Even though it's a fan- obviously it's a fantastic thing to be able to do, I just don't think I'd have the capacity to deal with that mentally or emotionally. And I wonder with that, I don't think that's always taken into account when you apply to be a doctor. I do I do feel that it's not really taken into account that you've also got to be, as well as the intelligence to know all the different things, whether you're mentally strong enough to be a doctor. Yeah, I think it's a completely different skill set to be able to have that. And I, I'm sure, like, you know, obviously had, we've had my previous guest, Josh, on, who's a doctor, and, you know, mentally I've asked him how he deals with things, but I'm sure there are doctors that struggle mentally. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I couldn't be the ones called up a member of family and say, look, your your father, your, your mother has passed away. I could not do that. Modern family or MasterChef? That's a really difficult choice. Um, they're both completely different as well. I'm going to go with Modern Family just because I think you could play that on and on and on. You could watch it over and over and over and it wouldn't get boring. Whereas with MasterChef, as much as I love it, I just, yeah, you'd, you'd get bored of it after a while. You've been working from home during this pandemic. What have you done outside of work to keep your mind active during this period? I've liked it when we've gone for our walks. I think they're really good. Like, guessing outside has been so important to me during this time. We have found walks that we never knew existed before before we went into lockdown. I think that's that's fantastic. I mean, it also just walking just helps you clear your head. And sometimes I don't do enough of it. I'm you know I'm so busy at work and I struggle to take a 15, 20 minute break. But actually, it would be really beneficial if I just just go and do that because it it completely like you know it freshens you up. So walking and exercising, yes, that's been really important to me during this time. And I love it when we're able to go on our walks together um, because it's also a company for me. Yeah, um, we both live in an area, North West London area, where you would think it's, it's you know, more urban, but actually 
yeah. is greener than we think. We found a lot of like nice nature walks, not just like city walks, but like nature walks. And we've got a lot of greenery around us that we didn't probably realize. And it's nice that we discovered it. And I think I was discussing it with a friend the other day. And I think going forwards, it's gonna ch- it's gonna be like a social thing to go for a walk a lot more now because we've been doing it all this time. I feel like it might be such a thing in the summer to be, or even springtime, you know, maybe in winter when we won't be doing that, but yeah. it won't be such an odd thing to say, do you want to go for a walk today? Rather than go and sit in a cafe and have brunch. Yeah, I totally agree. Might get a nice coffee on the way like we do, but uh, yeah, totally. I think why not continue what we've been doing and be healthy? Yeah, sure. Okay. So now I want to talk about your childhood. Now I do know certain bits of your childhood because obviously we've, you know, being together that long, we, we've discussed certain things in, our, in each other's lives. But um, for the listeners, I want you to just talk through your memories of your childhood. And also, I mean, for you, your family situation is, is slightly different to maybe some others. And also, there's a nice little story about how you sort of came to this world. Yeah. So I think I want you to share that. I have one brother, an um, older brother, Daniel. And Daniel was adopted at a few months old. Um, so he came first. Um, my, basically, the story is my parents were struggling to have children, kind of exhausted all you know the usual things that you try and do. And in the end, they decided to adopt. They adopted Daniel from Romania in the end, at a few months old. Um, he was malnourished. You, you can imagine what state he was in. But I think he adjusted well to, to being brought to the UK. So... After all the years of difficulty of trying to have children, they finally had Daniel. And then my mum suddenly fell pregnant as a complete surprise. She she really was not expecting us at all. After all the things she'd been told that, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to have children. It was very highly unlikely. And it's almost like when you stop thinking about it so much, it happens. So I was the miracle baby, and that's what my mum always said to me. And then... Yeah, so we had a quite a, a happy a happy childhood, I I think. Um, my parents gave us lots of love and attention, always did lots of things with us, invested so much time with us. Um, they'd take us out, they'd take us on holidays, trips, everything you think of, they would do it and they just spent so much time with us, which was really, really lovely. Um, my mum took a career break just to, you know, bring us up in the early years of childhood which was really nice. So I think, yeah, I was very lucky to have quite, you know, quite a happy childhood with lots of happy memories. Explains, you know, with Daniel, there's also learning disability. Yeah. So I thought you maybe could explain that because it's something we've not, I've not really touched about on my podcast before because I also have a learning disability. It's a little bit different and I hopefully will go on. I'm dyspraxic. Um, Not really mentioned that before because it's not something I'm proud of mentioning, but that's something I want to go on to in another time. But for Daniel, it's a little bit different. So Daniel has um, ADHD and Asperger's syndrome um, and was diagnosed really at quite a young age. With the ADHD, it came all the hyperactivity, like literally bouncing off the walls, absolutely mental, non-stop energy. And with the Asperger's syndrome, so that's the difficulty to, you know, interact socially and understand social situations. So he had the mixture of the two. It's quite... It's quite a common combination, but also quite an interesting combination. And I think, you know, each child with some sort of autistic or whatever is on the syndrome, they're, they're all so different. 
and my brother is definitely unique. So yeah, he was he was diagnosed at a really young age. Um, we were just so opposite. Daniel was obviously as I said bouncing off the walls. I was the calm, collected one. But I think he got too much to handle towards the end of primary school and was basically booted out of primary school because they couldn't take much more of him. And my parents were in quite a dilemma about what to do for obvious reasons. And in the end, after quite a battle to get funding, he was able to go to a specialist um, boarding school down on the surf coast um, in New Forest, which, you know, the school dealt with, well, it took in children with similar disabilities, learning disabilities and issues like Daniel had. So he moved down there to boarding school. We'd go and visit quite a lot which is quite nice because we go down to Newton Forest, we go to Bournemouth, we went to Southampton um, but I guess it's quite strange to think that one of your siblings goes off and you just stay at home with your parents so it's quite it's quite unusual. Well I think in our, in our circle you'd find anyone that goes to boarding school it, you wouldn't find it it's very unusual. But I think you just really adjusted to it and we would go down to see him quite a lot so it's not like we, you know we'd spend months without seeing him we'd go down every few weeks and he'd come home. And I think I was at secondary school, so I was just, you know, cracking on with things. I was very studious, so I was just getting on with it. So, yeah, and then he stayed down there. He went, he stayed for the sixth form there as well, and then he finally came home. So it was a good period of time that he was away from home. How do you think he found that change? Daniel struggles with change, and I think there were periods that were very difficult, and his, you know, he still had the same behavioural difficulties where he suddenly you know, had the old moment where he'd go off the rails at school. But I think, yeah, it must have been difficult for him to to deal with that mentally because, you know, to not be around your parents when early teens and to be, you know, and to have the difficulties that Daniel had must have been very strange for him to deal with. But the, the staff there were absolutely incredible. They knew exactly what they were doing. They did up day in, day out. So I think he had a, a really good support network there. Which is important for him because I think obviously in mainstream schools, they couldn't deal with that. And I feel yeah. they've got better nowadays because there are more children that are like Daniel. There are more children that are diagnosed earlier on and they, you know, they've got more techniques and support. Yes, and there's more, there's been more literature around it. There's been yeah. more reading about it. They've had more time to understand when probably where Daniel grew up at the same time as when I did. It, it think, certain things were, you know, you were known as special. So he was just characterised as the, the North child. Yeah. The one causing all the problems. And no one really understood it. There were very few teachers who were able to deal with it. There were the odd couple ones who were absolutely fantastic with him. But there were some that just did not know how to handle him. And that's he, with those teachers, he played up even more. Could you give an example of something that he would do? To sort of, so to give someone a picture. Like obviously, I, I know some of yeah. the stories you've told me, but I, to give you a picture of what off the rails means. So I, I distinctly recall, this was when I actually was at boarding school and Daniel just lost it. He went, climbed onto the roof of the building and was throwing roof tiles off the roof. And in the end, it ended up in an episode where the police came and took him to the police station and put him in a cell for some time. He got, obviously, he just got away with a, a caution, but... That that's the type of thing I'm I'm thinking about here. It's that you know just absolutely lost it. And there was no talking him down in those in those. No, in no, those there days. was no there's no rationalising with him in that situation. He is just in his own. You can't you can't get any sense. So like you've mentioned before, you're quite a studious person, 
Um, you obviously went through primary schools, you went through to Whitchurch, and then you went to JFS, and then you went to Leeds University, getting very high grades. I must ma- I must add, um, my, my, my wife is quite a brain box. Where has the like working, the work hard ethic come from? Do you think like, so you work extremely hard and I saw it in uni when I met you, like your degree. I mean, you got, nice. an, you got, an, it's worth saying you did get an, an award for your degree in law and French. Where do you think you get your work ethic from? Start from my parents, hundred percent. See, my dad worked incredibly hard, even though he wasn't the sharpest tool in the drawer. He always worked very, very hard to provide for his family. So I think I get a lot of it from him. But I was also very, very self-driven and ambitious and motivated. So for me, getting my head down, that was just something I just did. I didn't struggle like picking up my books. I just did it. Yeah, and did you always want to be a lawyer? Yeah, I think I knew quite early on. I was like, actually, I love writing. I love arguing. <laughs> in Arguing and writing as well. So I think it was kind of my skill set. I was going, actually, I think I'd be quite good at this. And I think it was quite early on in secondary school that I thought, oh, yeah, I want to be a lawyer. That, that came from quite early on. Yeah, and on this journey, I think it's worth saying that, you know, you got, you got into law school, which was, you know... you. You did very well to get into law school, but it was a little bit harder getting a firm after law school. You you did, it wasn't so easy. Despite all your good grades and that you work hard, it doesn't, it doesn't always go your way and you want to. Absolutely. I mean, getting into law is so difficult. I don't think people realise how grueling it is because, so, so once you're studying at university for studying law, whatever you're doing, you don't have to go and apply for vacation schemes and training contracts with law firms to be able to go and do your training to, before you can actually qualify as a lawyer. And to get those vacation schemes or training contracts is incredibly difficult. You know, you apply to quite a few and you get used to a lot of rejections. And you think, well, how, you know, how can this be? I'm like, I'm a straight A student. I do all this extracurricular stuff. Like, why don't they want me? And it's incredibly competitive. You kind of... I think most most people who've gone through it have been used to quite a, quite a lot of rejection, um, and it's just a very grueling process, but worth it in the end. Yeah, and you, like I said, you found the family you're at now, and you've been there ever since, and that is great. I now want to move on to meeting me. Um, so during that period, obviously, mm-hmm. you were coming into law school. So, what was your memory of when we first met? Well, I remember, I think it was my friend Jodie who dragged me out that night. So we met at a mutual friend's birthday. But yeah, I had to be dragged out. I really wasn't in the mood to go out that evening. And I'm kind of glad I did go out at the end. Um, I think it's, you know, I think a lot of it is, I always said this to you, fate that we met, and particularly when we did as well. I, th- I think I was just so glad, like, it all worked out in the end. You know, you never know what, what's going to happen. And I'm glad I went out. Yeah. Because um, I met you and I think we just clicked. And that was it. Probably the most difficult thing that's happened in your life is obviously your dad passing away a few, a few years ago now. Talk to me through how it happened as much as you want to. You know, this is what this podcast is all about. Something I don't speak about very often because it is very difficult things for me to me to speak about particularly as it happened and I was there so it was literally just one you know normal normal night went to bed and um, my dad had been working from home the day before and I, I'd, I'd been back from university not not very long and yeah so I just went to bed a normal night and then got 
got woken up early hours of the morning by this horrible, almost choking sound. And made kind of everyone just run up out of their beds. Um, and it was my dad on the on the landing. And he he just he'd just collapsed. There was blood coming up out of his nose. It's very difficult. No, it's fine. Just take your time. It's okay. Like you know, I've obviously we've spoken about this together, but this is a safe platform, and it's really brave what you're doing. And you take your own time. It's not very often that you have to repeat the story no. out loud. No, no. So my dad had collapsed on the floor. We called nine nine nine. We had to try and give him CPR. It just it was too late. It felt like forever for the ambulance to come and they tried everything they could when they did get that. But it was just too late. I think, I think it's also worth saying that everything was so normal the day before. There were just no warning signs or anything. He didn't feel unwell, nothing. There was just nothing to say that that was going to happen. I think that was the thing that hit you as a family hard because it was so sudden. Yeah. I think well, maybe where some be- some people might experience death, it's not as sudden as that or as vivid as that. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's what was particularly think, difficult for, yeah. you, for you guys. Yeah, I think it's not often that. Well, it's very, it's very different. You know, there's no right way to die. Some people it's sudden. Some people it's after a long illness. But to actually be there in that moment when it is sudden as well, it's just I, I can't. There are just no, no words. It's just so shocking and overwhelming. I, I don't even know the right word for it. Yeah, I think you're describing it perfectly. And in terms of that period, what do you what do you remember for the like the I would say the period afterwards because I think I'm very you remember very much. Do yeah. you very much were once that had happened, it yeah. sort of everything goes numb. Yeah. So whilst you know, I I remember that actual moment when it happened so clearly and so vividly. The rest of it is all a massive blur for me from from there on. Probably for at least another month maybe when I started back at law school um so I I, I think I, I don't know I think the brain does a funny thing and for me it blacked out a lot of it because I, I think I was also in shock and that's what happens with shock it just removes these memories from your from your brain that you don't want to even think about but I remember the odd thing and you know but very 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 little I don't know who was there and when I really can't remember that much. Worth pointing out to listeners that, you know, we weren't going out for a very long time. What, no, four or five really, months? No, a bit yeah, longer than that. A little bit longer. But not, it was no, it wasn't six it was months. So, yeah, it was very early on into our relationship. So, I mean, you'd only met my dad once or twice and very, very briefly as well. Yeah, I, I think I met your dad properly twice, but I like sort of had conversations with him previously. But I think the only time, I think there was one time that obviously I first met your parents, you brought me home to your parents. Mm-hmm. And there was another time I think I came round. I always distinctly remember the World Cup being on and yeah. him coming and com- commenting on whilst we had pizza. Domino's pizza. Yeah. yeah. And there was another time where I think I left the sat nav and he answered the door and we were having a chat by the doorstep. And that's the last, and then that's the last time I think I saw him. Yeah. Because I think it was the next night where it all yeah, happened. Yeah. So I found it was incredibly humbling of your mum to sort of 
allow me to to be around through these really sensitive moments. I don't want to be morbid, but I was there when the body was taken out. Like I was there when you know going through the funeral arrangements and the shivers and everything like that, which. You know, it's a very private thing for a family. And, you know, yeah. like I said, I didn't know, but you had a very nice answer when we spoke about this yesterday. Yeah, I think, you know, my, my mum definitely saw you as my support during this time. And it's, you know, you had to be there for me. So that's, you know, we welcomed you in. What else would we do? And we also needed someone to just lean on and, you know, speak some sense during that time because like, our heads were all over the place. I can't, I can't remember anything about the arrangements and how it all came together. And that's, we were just so reliant on having that support network. You were my support network. And yeah, you were just so fantastic throughout all of it and dealt with it. So, you know, you just got on with it and it's just unbelievable considering, you know, you weren't, you weren't close to my family at that time. You didn't really know them. So to be able to just slot yourself into that position is quite, quite remarkable just get on with it because a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that for me i didn't really think about it too much and i think that's what i've noticed as i've gone through, i've you know unfortunately i've seen my some of my other friends go through grief and i think i thought about it more than i did with you i think with you i just literally just like right i've just got to be there like you know i remember obviously i i personally will never forget the phone call that i got that morning um with you telling me what had happened and i raced out of bed came around to you and i didn't leave your i didn't leave your house for a few days because I stayed there. Um, it's worth, I hope you don't mind me saying, but like one of the things I uh, had to do was unfortunately we had to walk across that landing every night yeah, for you to bed. And you couldn't do that by yourself for a good couple of weeks. You couldn't do that by yourself. Well, Laura, thank you so much for sharing that. I know as your husband, how hard that was for you to do. If I could just ask, what was the cause of death to make it clear for our listeners? So it was a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, or AAA as they call it, um, which is basically when, well, I think it's one of the biggest blood vessels going away from the heart um, into the rest of your body bursts. My dad was 64 at the time, screening for this, this, this thing starts at age 65. So, you know, my dad was unlucky in that respect but it's something you know you should be aware of it it's it's not something that you would usually think of when someone dies early um, you know you think of the usual heart attack or something like that this was you know something I'd never heard of at the time so I'd encourage you know people to go for their screening when they're when they're due for it you know the usual health screening that you can take at any time because you know my dad was unlucky, but you, you could, you know, perhaps prevent it from happening to, to someone you love. If I tell you, try and spin this in some way, our relationship completely changed. And I yeah, think we yeah. both fell in love with each other after that from what we'd been through, which is, it's quite weird if you think it's about it. It's very unusual, isn't it? Like, it just changed our relationship. It matured so quickly because you're thrown into this completely unexpected horrible situation and you just have to deal with it and you're leaning on each other me more leaning on you and I know you had to lean on other people but it just it just changed things completely and you know the way the way you helped me and guided me through all of it I mean for me that was it I knew you were the one because you know just that compassion and understanding at such a horrible horrible time no and I mean 
I can't think of particular things that I did, and obviously, like I, I find it very hard for you to say that to me, because I, I, I just feel like I just did what anyone else natural. would do. Is yeah, I but just it's don't. Not, but it's not whatever anyone else would do. There are plenty of people who just wouldn't be able to cope with that because they wouldn't know what to do. But I don't think I did either. But but you're the kind of person that just kind that can emotionally take on those sorts of things. I think maybe, and maybe I, I'm emotionally stronger than I like to think. Yeah, you. But, you know, at that moment, I think, yeah, I just, I sort of kind of just thought, okay, like, I'm just gonna get on with it and, you know, help you and be there for you. And I'll do the best I can. You know, something I obviously want to touch on is you wrote a blog a little bit later and stuff that you've written in about it. Because I think you gave me a really good understanding of grief, of how someone can, I, you know, I had to watch, I've had to watch you on this journey and it's kind of given me a real outlook into what I think the thing I learned most is what things that you didn't like being said to you because I feel death is something that we avoid talking about as a society and for a long time I've always understood why that is and as I've grown older and I've experienced watching people go through that loss you know how our attitudes towards death you know very much when we're younger we're all we're sort of hidden away from it yeah because it's unless it's deeply uncomfortable because everyone just reacts and just kind of unexpected and strange and out, you know, out of norm ways when they're reacting to something so difficult. It's it's just an uncomfortable topic to talk about. Yeah, and is is that right that we avoid talking about it? Absolutely not. We need to get people talking more about it. I guess even earlier on in life, because I I mean, from my perspective, I I felt that. You know, some friends were brilliant at it. They, you know, they can talk to you about anything. They were, you know, extremely supportive. And some friends just did not know what on earth to say to you. And it's even like, you know, just have a normal conversation with me. Just speak to me rather than sit there in But do you, do you blame them for, for sitting there in no, silence? They, they, it's, they clearly haven't been through a situation like that before. I don't know what to do. And that's why I feel that there does need to be a lot more education around it. I know you completely agree with me on this. I guess the question is then around, you know, how do you do it and when do you do it? Should it be part of, you know, school? Um, and at what stage? It's difficult. It's, it is difficult. I think it's got to be part of education at some point. I don't, I couldn't tell you when. I couldn't tell you if primary school is the right age. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we've discussed, there is, you know, for instance, I know from being in school, there are children that suffered losing their parents at young yeah. ages. So then what do you do for, do you just isolate? You can't, you know, they, yeah. they do their own counseling. I think for what there is for kids, there are charities that help and do counseling and stuff like that. But what is a school, as a school, what, you know, it's, I find they find it is very difficult, not necessarily the school I'm in, but I think in schools in general, it's very difficult to deal with. And I, I mean, the thing I'm thinking about as well is that, you know, two of my friends, Nick from the previous episode and and another person, you know, my best friend, Sarah, who both had identical situation in terms of the head teacher felt it was the need to gather the whole school and tell them this sad news. I thought that was wrong. Mm. You know, Nick's is a little bit different because it's a smaller cast, but Sarah's, this is 90 kids that you're telling in front of those children. They just come back to school. You know, I just feel that that was the wrong thing to do. And I feel like there's got to be there's got to be more education about right. You know, this is one thing we can all guarantee in life. There's the, well, this is the thing. It's, it's just like it's it's kind of way of just normalising it because it's all good. It's going to happen to everyone. It's going to happen to people you know. It's just when and how how we normalise it and make it less uncomfortable is is the million dollar question. 
that I don't want to be biased or anything, but I feel our group of friends are very good in the situation um, because we, unfortunately we've had to experience it quite a lot. But I do think there's still, you know, this conversation, you know, we've been together six years and we've ne- not probably had this conversation before. It's because even I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, of course. It. But I'm saying yeah. that and, and obviously what's been said to me about this podcast, I'm giving a platform to have this conversation exactly what I want to do. I want to have these conversations um, yes, it's easier for me to have this conversation with you because you're my wife and I know what, you know, I know what I can say and I know what I can't say. Or I know, you know, I know how, if I'm going to upset you, yes or no. Whereas maybe I might get another person who's in your position and I'm not sure certain questions, how they yeah. understand, but I'm going to, you know, I want to at least give them the chance to say, look, this is how I feel. This is how I've gone through it. This is how I can help someone. So that's what I want to mm-hmm. move on to because what tools do you think really helped you get, getting through grief? So I think, I think it's a few things. Number one, I went and spoke to someone. So I went to see a therapist and I would absolutely advocate that because you need to try and verbalise a lot of it, even if it's to someone who's just completely independent and someone you don't know. Um, because then at least you're like addressing it in some way rather than burying it within. So that was a really important thing for me to do. And, you know, I wasn't, before that, I wasn't a big fan of, you know, that sort of thing. But it really, really helped me. And I'm glad you pushed me to do that because that, that came from you. Did it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> okay. It did. It did come from you. You were like, you need to speak to someone. I mean, you know, I tried counselling for me. That counselling didn't work because it was more just like, talk to me rather than the other person on the other side giving what? me some things I could do to help. Yeah. So I think that's worth pointing out from, I think we've both experienced the difference in between counselling and therapy. There is a difference. I never thought there was a difference, but there is. And I think you, what you've, when I've done both as well, I went to counselling first and very much the same as you. It was very much like, right, what do you want to talk about today? And I'll be like, well, isn't that pretty obvious why I'm here? Like, do you know what I mean? I didn't feel, and almost my dad used to say to me, like, you used to build yourself up before going to your counselling session because you used to get yourself more worked up thinking about what you're going to say, whereas a therapist will know exactly, I feel, what buttons to push. And also just give you the tips for dealing with it, which I think, you know, I didn't I didn't get out of counselling. Some people might, I don't know. Oh, yeah, of course. Some um, people might feel it differently, but I think two of us have been through a similar experience and yeah. come to this conclusion. Yeah, so I'd absolutely advocate that. And then... For me, I needed to continue, I needed to keep my brain active. So I was actually given the choice at that time to defer doing my final year of law school, so doing my legal practice course before I started my training contract. Um, So I was given the choice to defer that. And I said, you know what? No, I actually need to keep my brain active. I need to do something. And this is what my dad would want me to do. He'd want me to just get on, go and qualify and just do it. Um, and I think that really helped me because it, it, it gave me a kind of welcome distraction and just stopped me kind of just mulling around, which I think I would have done if I hadn't gone on, got on with it. Um, so I think that was really important for me. And then I think the, the final thing I'd say is just building up correct, strong support network around you. So including the people who you know will be there for you and support you in the right way. So having my close friends was just very helpful to kind of get me through it. So I did stumble across your blog that you wrote in 2015. And something you did say, which I, I think one thing I want to just talk about is that you said one of the things you hated, someone said this time hills. Yeah. 
could you explain what you mean why you because you know it's a thing that's said quite a lot like with time things get easier what would you say to that as a, and it's obviously your personal opinion of course yeah totally so i think for me the pain does not get any easier it's just how i've learned to manage it so i know i have i have episodes now and then they can literally come out of nowhere where i'll just have a moment and i'll just you know burst into tears just thinking about it and how upset and you know how, how horrible it makes you feel and I'll have those. And they become, over time, more infrequent. But they still happen. Yeah, so I think the pain never goes away. It's just how you learn to deal with it. So I know when I have my, those moments, I will give myself the time to have those moments. And I'll address it. I'll say, look, that's fine. I need to have that moment. I'm just going to cry. Rather than just bury it within. Um, so I think that's been important in giving it the time it deserves so for me whilst the pain is still horrible and intense it's it's kind of just stuck within me and it will come out every now and then but yeah i don't i don't think time heals that pain it's just that you learn to deal with it living with me during my mental health obviously like i started this podcast with massive support from you to talk about my mental health at some point and i wanted to start talking about it i have obviously touched on it a few times um, prior to this episode but and I will talk about it more coming up but I wanted to really to have use this unique position of having you on the show with me is to talk about how you felt being my wife watching obviously you would have you know for a lot of the listeners a lot of people that know me you've seen stuff that no one else has seen yeah it's worth mentioning to listeners that I didn't tell Laura straight away that I hid it for a good three or four months before I actually plucked the courage yeah. to sort of talk to you about it was there signs, do you think, before I came and spoke to you, do you think there were signs that you picked up on? There, there were warning signs, I think. You know, you'd have some days when you had a really low mood um, or just mood swings. And, you know, you just put it down to, you know, the odd stressful day at work. So, you know, that that's what it came across as. I think you were very good at hiding it. Yeah, so I think it was like the low mood. Some days I know you struggle to get out of bed. But, you know, for, for me, you'd always have your lions on the weekend sometimes. It wasn't hugely unusual. It's just that, you notice know, it sometimes more during the week when you actually were struggling to get out of bed to go to work. So I think there were a few things that I noticed, but I didn't necessarily put two and two together well, which you? I feel quite guilty about but I think yeah you you were very good at concealing that yeah I don't know if I've described this before but the way the analogy I always try and tell people is that I felt like I was wearing a mask most days yeah. and it got to a point where I had too many masks my drawer was over spilling with, with masks because I didn't know which one to put on yeah. and that's when I think it got to breaking point for me I think when you look back on things you can see it more and more you can put two and two together it's interesting to hear for me that you noticed the bed things now, but I think maybe you look back at it now and realise yeah. that it wasn't just me being lazy. It was yeah. me just not wanting to face the world. Yeah. Um, and I think when you weren't around to get me up, those were the days where I had really bad. And it's worth saying, I have mentioned, obviously, like, one of the big struggles I had was getting out of bed. Mm-hmm. And obviously when I was working, it was during the summer, I found it very easy to do that. But when, it was, when I was working, I'd obviously do that. You know, what I explained in episode six, the guilt trip of, in my head, I'd play the same guilt trip over and over again to get myself out of bed because I was get myself out of bed because that was the only way I was going to do it. And I couldn't, at some points, I couldn't explain it to you. 
because I hadn't told you. But when I did tell you, I still remember the night I told you. I think you were doing your hair and I sat down on the bed. Yeah, I remember it. And I think I said, I don't know what's going on with me, but I'm really struggling. I don't remember exactly how you say it. I think we just gave it the airtime and just discussed it. Obviously, you've gone through like the quite the journey with me, and I want to obviously don't want to bore everyone or go on too long. But there's there's certain points I do want to. I think I'm ready to talk about, and I think I'd like you. It's come from you more than anything else. But what were some of the things that you think were hardest during this period that we've had to go through as a couple, or you've had to see, or stuff that you've had to, you know, what are the hardest things that you say that you've had to experience during this period? Look, I wouldn't actually call it hard because for me, you're my husband, we will just, you know, we'll, we'll, we will cope with things together. It's just getting through it. I'm here for you. So not necessarily, I don't think hard is the right word for it. It's just kind of... No, why, why, why I say hard is because from the outside, yeah, maybe some of the things that we've had to go through together is yeah. tough on a relationship. Yeah. So I, I think... Probably a difficult one was when I when we went together to the doctor because I think I encouraged you. I was like, "We need to go and see someone." And you know, listening in on that consultation and hearing the things you were saying, and I was like, "I, I actually can't." It's quite shocking. Yeah, I can't believe you would feel like that. For example, <laughs> for example, like you know, having suicidal thoughts. For me, that was just. That came out of nowhere. I just wasn't expecting that, and that was that was obviously very difficult to listen to. But you know what? You know, you're my husband. I take you through everything. Like we would get through it together, and I knew that. So you know, you needed to get the help. Debatable how that how it was helpful what you were given, but well, I think I can honestly say, and I think you could back yeah. me up on it, it. The pills didn't help. I went on the antidepressants for. Well, how long did I give it? Three months? Four months? Yeah, you gave, you gave it a few months, but they, they really didn't... I don't think any difference no in my impact. mood. No impact. Even when I, I think I went to high dosage. And I think also, you know, I was reluctant to take them because I thought I'd get addicted to them, is the, is the truth. And yeah. I would rely on them heavily because I've heard all the stories of people not being able to get off antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I gave it a good slug and I just didn't see any impact. But that's more because something I will touch on in my own episode, I don't believe, I think my mental health is a little bit linked to my dyspraxia and a little bit to the way my childhood's been. And there's a lot of things that I think built up through my life and it's just got to a a hole and it's like, no, you can't cope anymore. This is, this is your breaking yeah, point. You'd had a whole series of things throughout life, which has impacted on you. And it just came to a head, I think at that particular moment in time. Yeah. It's it, built up. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not one shocking event that happened to you and it came out of that. It's a whole series of things over time. And that, I think that's quite interesting because, you know, you always think of it, oh, you know, when something, you know, terrible happens to someone or they've had, you know, someone pass away or something tragic happened. But actually, it's not always, it's not always that. It's life experience that can do it to you over time. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there were some days where I was like, your mood is so low, how on earth do I get you out of this stump? Like, it just, you know, the tears and stopping someone from, you know, going over the edge. Like, I felt with you sometimes, how do I, how did I, how do I stop those tears? 
um, what can I actually do to help you? And I felt, I felt quite powerless actually, because I couldn't, I couldn't help you, I don't think, like just by myself. So it was trying to pull you up when you were feeling so, so low. And I, that, ha- that happened quite a lot. Some days in the evenings, I know little things could trigger you off and you just lose it. And then it was trying to pull you back in. No, it's, it's, it's exactly what I want to share because, like I said, some of my best friends don't really know yeah. what happened behind closed doors and we're opening our doors yeah. together, like, to what happens. I can't remember there was that one night where, and if you're happy for me to talk about yeah, it, sure. when I don't even know what had happened, I think, and you lost it and then you went in the bedroom and you opened your pills and you threw them all on the floor as if you were, you know, what am I going to do with these? And I had to kind of rein you in from that, from feeling like that low. Well, was, yeah, for listeners, I emptied those out with the intent of swallowing every single one. So, which is, I mean, it was horrible for me to see because I, could, I actually couldn't understand. I couldn't understand why you felt like that extreme to, to want to go and do that. That I, that I couldn't comprehend and that, that was challenging. And also very, very upsetting as your future wife at that time. Yeah, no, and I had to be honest, like, you know, I think as time went on, I learned to share things more with you, obviously. Yeah. And we, we work with, you know, we're, we're coming for, you know, we're here now, like we're, we've come through a journey and I'm and certainly think, in the better half of that journey. Absolutely. Like, I think you have come along so much since you've been speaking to other people and me about it more. I think, you know, at the time when you told me, I was like, well, why didn't you speak to me earlier when when that conversation happened? I was like, well, I'm future wife. Why didn't you tell me? Because, you know, I, I take you as you come. I love you. We'll get through anything together. So it was a little bit of annoyance on my part. Like, well, why didn't you tell me earlier? Yeah. Um, why don't we speak about it? And, you, you know, over time, you have been able to speak about it a lot more. And just, you know, you come to me and say, look, I'm having a really terrible day. Can we talk? And we've spoken, and I think that helps you a lot. You yeah, know, I mean, talking has been the number one thing that yeah. I would say has helped me through this period until and got me through things. And obviously, conversations with you has helped as well, um, as well as professional, professionally talking, and whether it's talking to my friends, yeah. that's really helped. But um, just one question I would like to ask and maybe where we could both help someone together is the intention mm-hmm. is if someone if you someone was going watching their partner go through or think their part you know not I don't want to say think but if they think their partner's going through a rough time or their partner is going through a rough time and they feel powerless like you did what would be your advice to them I mean you will get through this it you know encourage them to speak because and as uncomfortable as that may be for both of you it needs to be done because that's the only way, real way of addressing it. So I think talk as much as possible is what I would say and do it early on. Not looking at everything at face value. You do not know what someone else is feeling inside. So just be conscious of that when you talk to people. It's what I, I, something I've really learned. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So just be conscious of that. And yeah, just the way you address people, talk to people, the things you say... Just be conscious of your audience. You don't know what's going on. Yeah, and I think that was one thing that I noticed is that 
I could hide that because social situations were, diff- were difficult yeah. for me and they still are. And I think I've learned that as a person, I felt I socially, I've had a lot of difficulties and that, so some people are saying, what are you talking about, Ben? Like you're chatting yeah. shit, but I, I really genuinely. Yeah, no, I've seen it. I've seen you like, it's, you know, you know what I'm saying. Sometimes the panic before you go to a big kind of social gathering, whatever, you're like, well, what if people think I'm boring and I'm quiet and I don't know what to say. I'm not like the loudest person that can just trigger off conversation, you know, about X, Y, Z. And that's what you worry about. And I'm just like, well, people like you for you and your input, you don't have to be the loudest person in the room. But I don't think I ever thought about that before in the yeah, last couple of years. You're a lot more conscious of it now. But that, I don't know whether that's because of what I've gone through. I don't know whether that's always been there, but maybe I'm not so, been not so vocalised about it. I think deep I down I've always cared about what people think about me. And I was I know I think I've always felt But you're just more conscious of it than you were, maybe. maybe. So no, maybe when you're young you're all the more carefree, whatever. I've always cared about what people think about me and always felt like I need to be liked by everyone or I need to or if someone doesn't like me they have to have a good reason for not liking me. It can't be just a clash of personalities, it's gotta be like I've done something really awful for them not to like me. And I think I found it hard, I've always found it hard when people have no reason to not like me yeah. without getting to know me. And I feel this is, I mean, I'll say last bit I want to say on this, but I feel being at the secondary school I was, you were judged very quickly. And once you were judged, yeah. that's you, you're written off for the, for, yeah. for the rest of your school career. And that's what happened with me. I feel, I feel I was labeled as one type of person, which I think I put down to my dyspraxia and to a lot of things that I've learned about dyspraxia. And I was that person. And the truth is, I don't think I, I don't think I ever had proper friends until I was sixteen years old, or even seventeen yeah. years old, who actually valued me as a person. I think my friendships before that, which were, now I look back on it, they weren't friends. They weren't what I think is a friendship. They weren't real friendships. No. Yeah. The last question I'd like to ask you is: three people you'd like to interview or have dinner party with. If that could be celebrity or not, could be someone from your family, anyone you want it to be. So my first one would definitely be my grandpa, so my mum's um, my mum's dad. So he died when I was coming towards the end of primary school, so I was still really young. But he was the only grandparent I really knew because my other grandparents had, you know, two of them had died before I was even born, and one died when I was very young. So I was closest to my grandpa. Um, but he had a really interesting background and I never really at that age got to ask questions I would have asked now so I know that he he fled Nazi Germany and went on quite a journey he was 17 at the time um, separated from his mum and brother who went to then Palestine um, he came to the UK and then got interned to Australia as an enemy alien and then eventually came back but there are so many unanswered things that I would love to know now. And I, I know he didn't like to talk about it because my mum didn't ask those questions either. So do you I, think that was more to do with society at the time that you didn't ask those questions? I think my grandpa was very uncomfortable talking about it. Like, I know he renounced his German name. He didn't want anything to do with it. So, yeah, it probably, it probably is. But I would just, I'd be fascinated to know more and more, more about my background. Because at the end of the day, if he hadn't come back, to the UK, I wouldn't be here. So I think, I think it's a, a fantastic story that unfortunately has got lost. That's my first one. Second one, I'd say Princess Diana. 
Oh. I think she's a really interesting one because I think I think a few things. She well, she's an icon, but the charitable work she did was quite incredible. She was so loved for all that she did. So I'd love to, her, to talk to her about that, but also the you know quite a fascinating side of you know the press and invasion on you know her life from a royal's perspective. I think that could be really fascinating. So yeah, I think I'd pick. Princess Diana. Okay, and your last one? I think I'd go with Eminem just because I think you'd be able to have the most intelligent, fascinating conversation with him. You can tell he's an absolute genius, so I think, you know, it would just be really interesting to, to talk to him, you know, about his life and his career. He's so successful. So, yeah, I'd pick Eminem. Oh, I think Eminem is a good one for me. I mean, he's it's the rap artist I grew up with. I think the first introduction to rap was him, but also I think for what you say, like him for his career, I think the perspective I would love to, I don't know about you, but it's just the fact of, you know, coming from where he came from, a, yeah. a trailer in Detroit to now. So it's superstar, yeah. No, I'd be absolutely fascinating, I think. Okay, well, Laura, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for coming on, supporting me and supporting this journey, but also for coming on and being my guest and... And yeah, thank you for being here. No worries. I think it's been fantastic, you know, breaking down the barriers about things people don't want to talk about. So, and even from my perspective, so it's been really great. And I've just really enjoyed listening to all of the podcasts, all the podcasts you made in this series. It's been so enlightening and you should be really proud of yourself. I'm so happy and proud of how far you have come. It's amazing. Thank you for listening. As it's the end of the series, there will be a little break. However, watch out for the updates from me over the next few weeks on my social media pages. I still want to be able to connect with you guys in this break. For now, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can discover my podcast. If you haven't already, listen to my other episodes. Until then, keep connecting.